Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And boy, do we have a very special episode for you guys today. One that's a long time coming, I know, because a lot of you have harassed me about it for a long time. We had on today the great J.D. Vance. But uh, before we get to that, as always, encourage you guys to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this podcast. You can find information about events that we're doing in Washington and beyond. And also read Amcanon, which is our aggregator of the best books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, short pieces, and more. Um, with this episode specifically, just want to put a disclaimer out there. American Moment is a 501c3 organization. That means we are a nonprofit and we do not take any official stances uh, in political races. Now, obviously, J.D. Vance is a candidate for Senate, but uh, the you know performance of this episode or any other content with J.D. should not be seen as an endorsement of his candidacy um, or a uh, disendorsement, I guess, of any of the other uh, opponents in his race. This is purely for educational purposes. Um, I feel like uh, a little bit silly uh, introducing J.D. Vance, but uh, uh, for posterity, uh, J.D. Vance is an investor, commentator, and author of the number one New York Times bestselling Hillbilly Elegy, uh, which has the august title of being one of the few books I've actually gotten all the way through. Um, it is eminently readable. If you've only ever read content about Hillbilly Elegy, I highly recommend actually reading Hillbilly Elegy. Um, it is described by the National Review as a brilliant book and by The Economist as one of the most important reads of 2016. I'm wondering if National Review has changed their mind. Yeah, they may that. have that endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was raised by working class grandparents in Milltown, Ohio, and he graduated from Milltown High School in 2003. Uh, after that, he immediately enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. We talk a little bit about his service today on the episode. And during his time in the Marines, he deployed to Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, after graduating from Ohio State University. He studied at Yale Law School uh, and earned his law degree in 2013. Uh, today, he serves as a special advisor to the Rise of the Rest Seed Funds uh, and has founded Naria Capital. Uh, he continues to lecture and write on topics of public interest, regularly discussing politics and public policy on national networks and appearing on ABC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, and every other uh, outlet under the sun, including our very own Moment of Truth. Uh, and he is a candidate for United States Senate in the state of Ohio. Uh, Nick, what did you think of the episode? It was great. I mean, JD is awesome. Uh, we were talking about after the show that he may, uh, you know, end up with some angry texts after this one. It was, <laughs> it was, it was a very spicy uh, episode. We talked a lot about, um, you know, how. Uh, uh, charges of you know racism are valued higher than charges of incompetence. Uh, uh, you know we talked a lot about how um, you know woke capital is taking over you know our American capitalist system, um, and we talked a lot about how the elites got this way, uh, how they became so hateful uh, of the average American, but also how they cling tightly to wokeism uh, as a religion as a substitute. Um, you know, for Christianity or for our American values. So it's a fantastic episode. Uh, you know, we, we, JD is a board member at American Moment. We, 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 we love him. Uh, love to seek his counsel. Very smart guy. Um, and very excited to hear your guys' reactions to the show. Yeah. It's, you know, 
like 11 in the morning when we're taping here today but it really felt more like kind of a 6 p.m over a couple beers sort of conversation we definitely got amped our audio engineers are out for a challenge based on the different volumes of uh talking that happened and jd and got all pretty the, animated the yeah he was definitely banging. banging on the table <laughs> uh, even though we asked him not to but that's okay it was it was a lot of fun highly recommend you listen all the way through uh and now we'll go to jd vance JD, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming, but the way that we like to always start is uh, having our guests explain how they got to where they are today. Now, I think you're the only person who's written a book about it, but why don't you walk us through the highlights anyway? How, how did you become the, the JD Vance that everyone knows slash hates slash loves? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'll try to be brief so we can get to the, the more interesting stuff, but I grew up in southwestern Ohio in a steel town. My grandparents were sort of immigrants from southeastern Kentucky coal country. And what's crazy about Middletown, Ohio, is, is sort of in the in the imagination of my grandparents, that was like the land of opportunity. That was where, even if you didn't have a high school diploma, you could move there, work hard, play by the rules, and support a family on one union steelworker's wage. And that's why uh, my parents or my grandparents moved to southwestern Ohio. And my grandparents figure so prominently in my own life because my mom was addicted to opioids when I was a kid. And so my grandparents really raised me, especially my, my mamma, as I called her, after my grandfather died. And, uh, you know, sort of grew up in somewhat chaotic environment, didn't have a whole lot of money, but I did have my grandma. And because of that, I think my life really worked out and uh, went from, you know, Middletown enlisted in the Marine Corps in 2003. This is April of 03. And if you guys remember, uh, we invaded Iraq in March of 03 and then went from uh, the Marine Corps to Ohio State. Ohio State to Yale Law School, started writing this book, Hillbilly Elegy, when I was in law school, eventually went out to Silicon Valley to work for Peter Thiel. And, um, you know, sort of as the book was taking off, moved back home, launched my own business in my hometown, or at least close to my hometown. Cincinnati is the closest big city to where I grew up. And that's where I've been sort of, you know, lived my life the last few years. And uh, I've got a beautiful wife. We met in law school, a four-year-old boy, 18-month-old boy. And, uh, you know, life life really worked out for me. But a lot of my writing and a lot of the things that I work on and think about is like, why has that sense that America is the land of opportunity, that this is a place of possibilities, even if you don't go to college? Why has that disappeared for so many people? And that's really, you know, I think what brought me to, uh, to, to talk to you guys and what brought me to write the book and what brought me to run for Senate and do all the crazy things that I'm doing today. Yeah, so let's circle back, you know, to your 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 time in the. Oh man, I hate that I just said that. Circle back. Oh, <laughs> we're, we're really adopting that as yeah, part of our lexicon. It's the, uh, the phrase of the liberal millennial. Yeah. We but, should we should connect later. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> over drinks, coffee, whatever. Um, but let's let's talk about your time in the military and 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 Semper Fi. By the way, I was born in. Uh, in Oceanside. My dad is a Marine, was stationed in Pendleton. Yeah. Um, so spent a lot of time out there when I was young. But tell us more about your time in Iraq, um, you know, your time serving in the military and how that kind of influenced some of the views you have, uh, you know, regarding foreign policy and the way that we use our military infrastructure now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I enlisted in 03 and I went in what was called open contract where they don't, you know, I didn't go in with an MOS and they assigned me when I was in boot camp. And I remember they called me at their office and said, well, you know, you're going to be in public affairs. And I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, um, you know, you'll sort of take photos of what's going on in base. And when you deploy, you'll try to make sure that journalists don't get themselves killed. 
And so it was, it was kind of crazy because when I went to Iraq, like a lot of what I was doing was interacting with the media. And, you know, this is 05. I was in Iraq from 05 to 06. The media was swarming constantly, right? They were sort of mm -hmm. obsessed with what we were doing. It was nonstop interest. And it is kind of one of these weird things that by, you know, 2015, 2020, these wars have been going on for so long that the press just didn't care about them anymore. Uh, but that wasn't true when I was there. Um, but I, I think it also, you know, I exposed me a fair amount to the Iraqi population. And, you know, one of the crazy things that I did in Iraq is they they had us do, they had the Marines doing poll security for the constitutional referendum that happened mm -hmm. in 05. I think it was probably October of 05. And then they had these parliamentary elections in December of 05. And, you know, as much as I was like at the time, I was really proud of this. And I was reading books. You know, I remember I read this book in Iraq called The Case for Democracy by Natarn Sharansky. It's like this neoconservative manifesto. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm like reading this book while like literally working with these Iraqi poll workers and thinking to myself, like, oh, my God, these people don't give a damn about this. <laughs> like they're helping us out and they're all mostly nice people. But they're really helping us out because they're making a decent amount of money to help us out. And they don't really like care about democracy that much. They don't care about being able to choose their, their leaders. They just want like a safe country. That's like all they want. And it was sort of interesting, all of this frustration about, you know, about America's presence. And, you know, in America, it was viewed in like very ideological terms, right? They're sort of mad that we're in their country. They don't want us in their country. And the Iraqis that I interacted with most of all was like, why is our country such a disastrous, violent hellhole? Like, we want that to stop. If America can stop people blowing up markets, we're fine with America. But if you're not going to do that, then get the hell out of here. Mm -hmm. And that was just a really interesting you know, perspective, because I brought a lot of American political ideas to my time in Iraq. And I got there and realized that a lot of those ideas were very stupid. When you initially decided to enlist, uh, I mean, it's hard for us because we were both very young at the time of 9-11. I don't have any memories of 9-11. Um, but for people who were even a little bit older, there was a sense, I mean, it's like the Toby Keith song, you know, where we're, we're going to go punch them in the face or yeah, whatever. Absolutely. What, what, what was it like deciding to enlist in the first place was just sort of what made sense at the time? What what animated and motivated your decision to do that? It was definitely a sense of duty and obligation. You know, I at the time I was living, it was just me and my mamaw living together. My sister had left the house. And, you know, the thing that my grandmother was most proud of, aside from her family and sort of the things that were very close to home, is that she was part of the generation that won World War II, right? And uh, she was a little girl when her older brother and her father went off to fight the Japanese in the Pacific. But this like sense that this was a major national project that she had participated in was really powerful. Like we won the war, we beat the Nazis. That was a big deal to Mammal. And she felt like this was our this was our thing. This was our moment. This was like the next generation of Americans who would have to step up and do something big. And she hated the idea of me enlisting. She did not want me to join the Marine Corps. She really, you know, fought it pretty aggressively. Yeah. And she was a pretty aggressive person. <laughs> um, but but I, I think there was just this sense that like, okay, this is our country. We owe something to it. We've been given a lot. And this is even, you know, we came from a working class family. Didn't we sort of wake up thinking to ourselves, oh, like America's been unfair to us. It was America's given us a really good and safe place to live our lives. And when that happens, you should go off and you should do what your country asks of you. And at that time, if you were a young man, it felt like what our country asked of us was like, we need to go enlist in the Marine Corps. And it's funny, you know, Mammal had six grandkids, three of them enlisted in the Marine Corps. On the block that I grew up, the 300 block of McKinley Street in Middletown, Ohio, uh, there were two graduates, Middletown High School class of 2003, both of us enlisted in the Marine Corps. It was just all around us. It was just what you did was you went and served your country. Well, and there's this big disconnect, right, between the community where you grew up in, 
uh, which is full of the kinds of people who go to fight our wars. And then the community that you eventually became a part of, which are the people who decide which wars we fight, you know, namely at Yale Law School and in political life and everything. Um, well, what is the disconnect that you see between those two worlds? Because it's it's very clear that it is not the children of our elites that are going to die in the Middle East for democracy promotion or purple thrums or teaching critical race theory at Kabul University. Uh, that's yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's it's pretty consistent. The evidence is like it's middle class people, it's lower middle class people, it's working class people. It's not the very poor, but it's certainly not the very rich either that are serving uh, most disproportionately in our military. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess the main thing that I take away is that most elites see American power in very ideological terms. They're like, what can we do? What can we accomplish by projecting American power? Which really just means sending young Americans overseas to fight and die in wars. And, um, you know, look, sort of understand, like, we want to have a, an American foreign policy that's in our best interests. But it, it's it's like most people that serve, I think, don't see our wars in these ideological terms. Like, why did I enlist in the Marine Corps? It's not because I wanted to bring democracy to Iraq. It's because that was what my country told me I had to do. And so I did it because I was a good citizen. I, I was trying to be a good young man. Um, and, and, and there are all these like weird ways in which I think that our elites are very uncomfortable with what our troops are actually seeing and what they're talking about and what they're doing. And, you know, I remember there were a couple of leaked videos towards the end of my time in the Marine Corps. I was back, back in the States by then, uh, getting ready to go to Ohio State. Um, and, and, and there were these videos that were like leaks of American helicopter pilots who were sort of, you know, shooting Iraqi terrorists on the ground. And there was this massive like reaction to it, like, oh, we can't believe that they're talking about the people that they're killing in this way. Or like, you know, the, the helicopter pilot or who, the gunner, whoever says light them up or something like that said, oh yeah, we got them. It's like, this is how people talk when you take young men and put them in a position where they have to kill other people in defense of their country. They don't say, oh, you know, we will valiantly pull this trigger and respect the dead as we do it. That's just not how normal people actually work. And I was, I was talking with my aunt about this recently, that like the first four or five emails that I sent home, because, you know, phone service wasn't super easy to come by, especially when you're we doing the poll worker stuff. Um, at that time, you know, there were some people, some people had like satellite phones, but you really had to like go to a call center to make a call. You could not like Skype your family in 2005, 2006. And I remember like, like we were talking with my aunt about this, that, that a lot of the emails that I sent home about Iraq were about the fact that there were like weird sexual practices among some of the old male poll workers and the young male poll workers. And, and it was like, what is going on? Like, is this rape? Is this some weird cultural practice that I don't understand? But like, why are there so many old men having sex with young boys in Iraq? Like, that was a thing that we all talked about. Like, what the hell's going on? And I think about this in the context of, you know, the Afghanistan, the Bachabazi cultural practice and how like elites just don't talk about this stuff because it's uncomfortable to accept that there's some weird stuff going on over there. But like when you're actually a troop on the ground interacting with people, you're like, well, there's some weird stuff going on over there. Yeah. So you mentioned Afghanistan. Let's shift gears to that a little bit. Um, <clears throat> flex some of your political chops here. Uh, let's talk about the, the kind of botched withdrawal, um, you know, in the in the end of the war in Afghanistan, um, obviously it's 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 a good thing that that war is over and that um, sure. you know we're 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 bringing Americans back home and they're not going to be dying unnecessarily uh, in Afghanistan. But uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, about how it kind of how it's kind of played out over the last couple of weeks, and are you are you really surprised with how it how it turned out? 
I'm definitely surprised by, I think, the level of catastrophe. I mean, the thing that I, I, I really am convinced of is that the 13 Marines, or I guess it was maybe 12 Marines and a soldier and a sailor who died in Iraq, or sorry, who died in Afghanistan towards the end, is like basically the reason that they were killed is because they were effectively drafted, conscripted into being TSA agents at a Taliban-controlled Kabul airport, right? And so you have this mass of people who are trying to get through to get on these airplanes. It's total chaos, I think very unnecessary. It shows how dysfunctional our government is that it was ever allowed to become that chaotic. But they're basically trying to screen people to make sure the people who are getting on the airplanes are the people supposed to be getting on the airplanes. And that puts them in an incredibly dangerous situation. And that was just the most egregious example of a series of very real catastrophes that happened. You know, the thing that, I, that I've heard so much repeated um, but on, on the right that I think is true, I think you always have to be worried about conventional wisdom, but these two bits of conventional wisdom on the right are just objectively true, is I think one, Biden pushing back the Trump withdrawal timeline was a real disaster. Like we should have left when Trump said we should have left. And the reason that withdrawal timeline was set was for strategic reasons. It wasn't just a date that was picked out of the hat. And so when you go through a withdrawal process, choosing a particular de date and then you kind of willy-nilly change that date i think it really did change the, the the tenor of the withdrawal and then the second thing is just the bagram air base debacle right like there's there's two there are two airports one of them is easy to protect one of them is completely under our control and one of them is not and we chose to close the one that was easier to protect and more under our control uh, that's just a disaster it's like you know if you want to leave a house you close the door after you leave the house, not before you leave the house. Like there's just a basic common sense, you know, don't barricade the exits before you actually get out. And I think that was, you know, a predictable disaster. But the, the thing that I'll say about, about Afghanistan is that it does reveal something much more fundamental and broken about our entire country. And so, you know, like I understand, like I'm a Republican politician running for Senate. Yes, the Biden administration did a bunch of stupid stuff in Afghanistan, but it reveals a complete failure from our generals, from our Pentagon bureaucrats. Everyone lied to us. They told this was a stable situation. They told us we were prepared for exit. They told us the exit was going to be relatively peaceful. They told us that Afghanistan was becoming a functional country. They told us that if we gave them roads, bridges, but also gender studies programs, Afghanistan would eventually become a Western style democracy. It was all a lie. It was all bogus. And what I take from that is one, we are ruled by very stupid people. And two, we are ruled by stupid people who suffer no consequences when they're revealed to be wrong. Because in a healthy country, Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, all of them would have resigned or been fired by now. And uh, I think that is maybe the biggest takeaway is that our elites suffer no consequences when they fail. Well, it's Republicans and Democrats both, too. I mean, Republicans lied to us about it <clears throat> for years. And you even have people like, you know, Lindsey Graham saying <laughs> we have to go back. And I'm sitting here thinking, what are you smoking? Yeah. Like you have to be on drugs to think that that is, uh, you know, a viable solution to the problem. Well, it reveals there is this like fundamental fraudulence at the heart of the way that our elites talk about it. Like they're so fake in the way that they discuss problems of foreign policy. So my 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 very hilarious recollection of this is a few weeks ago, maybe Trump was on Sean Hannity and, you know, I forget who was on Sean Hannity's show before that, but basically he was going through this litany 
of things that the brave Afghan National Army had done and why we owed this incredible debt and obligation to the Afghan National Army. And I'm sitting there watching myself thinking, okay, so we gave them $85 billion of equipment. We gave them the most advanced weapons in the world and they folded to like a bunch of illiterate people, like illiterate, you know, sheep herders, basically, the Taliban. And we're supposed to talk about how brave and wonderful they are. Like, are they actually that brave or are they total cowards who threw down their weapons the minute there wasn't an American standing behind them? And and then Trump comes on and he, it's I don't know if he had heard what the previous guest had said, but he's like all these people talking about the brave Na- Afghan National Army. And he says something like 300,000 people against 85,000, you know, Taliban. These people aren't brave. And I'm like, exactly. <laughs> There's, like, why can't we just admit to ourselves that this entire project was a total failure? The Afghan National Army wasn't brave. They weren't competent. We were not creating Western style democracy. Afghanistan is a disaster. It's always been a disaster. And American power cannot change that. Well, and this goes to the like moral blackmail that our elites love to use uh, when it comes to situations like this. I mean, literally the second um, that that the withdrawal began, it was it was all about, you know, I mean, I saw this one tweet from a lady who was like, I pioneered the first women and gender studies program at Kabul University and all of my hard work has gone away. And like, I'm just like, good. Great. Excellent. Yeah. But but this moral blackmail is is what's extremely frustrating. And it's 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 why I think um you know, the right has to be very careful right now, because I think it is entirely merited to criticize certain elements of how the withdrawal was done. But very, you know, uh, dishonest actors are using that as a vehicle to then call for no withdrawal at all. How are you thinking about that? And, And do you think that the withdrawal was absolutely necessary to happen ASAP? Yeah, I think absolutely we had to get out of Afghanistan as soon as possible. And the other way that that moral blackmail is being used is, oh, you now have to accept over 100,000 unvetted Afghan refugees into your country. And uh, it's like it's like I think about this from the perspective of people like my mammal who has you know, passed away. And it's like, OK, so you send your sons, your daughters over to this foreign country to try to build a Western style liberal society and your own people don't give a damn about building a Western style liberal society. The Afghans that you're allegedly trying to help, they don't care either. And having failed miserably in that and spent a lot of American blood and treasure in the process, you now want to take the same people who have revealed themselves to be incompatible with American style democracy and import them into the United States. And again, the moral blackmail. Well, there's so many people uh, who helped us. Okay. I'm sure there's there's a lot more translators than I thought of. Apparently, (laughs) Afghanistan is a country of translators and interpreters because every single person that's coming in, that's what they say is this person is a translator and interpreter. Well, first of all, again, this is the fraudulence of our elites. You talk to people who served in Afghanistan, and one of the things they will tell you is, yeah, a lot of the translators and interpreters who helped us were great guys. We would love to help them. Don't necessarily need to bring them to the United States, but we want to help them. But also, a lot of the interpreters who said they were helping us were actively helping terrorists plant roadside bombs, knowing our routes. This is the classic blue on green violence that we talked about and we've heard about in Afghanistan. So like the idea that every person in Afghanistan, even those who said they were helping us are actually good people is a total joke. And then again, there's this thing that I was attacked on um, Twitter and, and got into a little fight with Ben Sass over. It's like, can we have just an honest conversation about whether certain groups of people will successfully become American citizens. And I saw this Pew Research poll, right? 
And it was something crazy like 98% of Afghans believe that stoning a woman is an appropriate punishment for adultery. And then like 40% of Afghans believe that suicide bombing is an acceptable way um, or, 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 or sometimes or always a reasonable way to solve a problem. I forget the exact wording of the poll. It's like, okay, come on. Yes, that means that 60% of Afghans do not believe that suicide bombing is an acceptable way to solve a problem. Good for them. But if we're not properly vetting people, are we letting in like a group of people, one of one, approximately one half of whom think that suicide bombing is a cool way to solve a problem? Like that's not a way to build a country and that's not a way to reward people who just sacrifice their sons and daughters for an elite misadventure. Well, so they've run this playbook over and over again. I mean, I, <clears throat> I've talked about this on the show before, but being from Minnesota, you know, the, the, the Somalian civil war, they did something very similar. They, you know, the, the United States got involved, the UN got involved, and then we got a bunch of, you know, translators and people who assisted us out. Yeah. And what happened was we flew them all to Minneapolis and we put them on a bus to downtown and we pushed them out and said, have fun. Yep. See you later. That's right. Like there's there there are no plans for integration at all. And it has only gotten worse, you know, as these as these people's families have 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 grown and have not been given any system to integrate at all. And they have completely different cultural values, um, you know, from the from the American people. So there's like a whole section of downtown Minneapolis that they call Little Mogadishu. Like that's that's what they call it. There's nothing in English. People are frequently like hatcheted to death in the street. I mean, it is it is truly like walking down there. I was just down there a couple weeks ago. It's like a totally different country. So uh, I totally yeah. agree with you. I don't think there's really any good way to, to, to do something on this large of a scale. Yeah, exactly. And again, there's, there's like one question is, how do you integrate 2000 people from a war-torn country uh, very, you know, successfully. And then there's another question, how do you integrate 100,000 or 200,000? And then you compound that with the fact that, you know, because of our chain migration system, you can have 100,000 become 400,000 over a 10 year period very easily. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, and the thing that I hate about this is the left uses racism as a cudgel. And I myself was guilty of being a little worried about that. Like, I don't want to be called a racist because I knew it can be career ending and can destroy a person's life. But it's like, why don't you want, um, you know, people getting hatcheted in the street in downtown Minneapolis? Is it because you're a racist? Or is it because you don't like people getting hatcheted in the street in your own community? Like, yeah. obviously the answer is the latter, but the left uses racism as a cudgel to shut us up and to make it impossible to complain about obvious problems. And again, this is sort of, if, if the fraudulence of the elites is the fundamental problem of American society, the gasoline that keeps it going is the charge of racism. Because if they ever had to reckon with the fact that their arguments are fake, they wouldn't be successful. They use racism to distract from it. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, it, it, if you were looking from a critical distance, we were an alien that came to, to Earth and you looked at American society and you were kind of looking at it objectively, you would say, in this society, the greatest and most evil charge that can be presented to you is racism. Racism is bad. Not a fan. But like, I think there's a lot more evil stuff going on in American society. I think that, you know, stealing or murdering people or abortion or all sorts of things are much more evil things. But all of those are are minimized and 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 diminished by our elites, whereas like the charge of racism is a conflated with a thousand things that aren't and then made this like totemic. Yeah, evil. yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, 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 fr a friend of mine made this point that Millie 
who just presided over the biggest foreign policy disaster pretty much of my lifetime, I would say, will suffer zero consequences, but if he made a racial slur, he would get fired immediately. Yeah. This is not a healthy country where real substantive disaster, you suffer no consequences. Just not acceptable. Yeah. Um, and going back to the, the the immigration problem, I mean, you said that chain migration is, is a big part of it, but also it's the, the generational aspect, which is if you bring in these large communities of people that don't integrate properly into the country, their children and grandchildren grow up resenting Correct. the country. I mean, that that's what Rahan Salam talks about in his Absolutely. great book that we have right there. Yep. Um, and, you know, thinking about the Minnesota example specifically, that's he gets someone like Ilhan Omar, who despises the country that has... I wasn't going to name names, <laughs> but... Yeah. I mean, yeah. they gave her an incredible amount of opportunity <laughs> yeah. and then just the complete lack of gratitude. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, you know, my family has been here, as far as I can tell, for nine, ten, like, uh, many generations. I've never heard a person in my family express the ingratitude towards this country that Ilhan Omar does mm -hmm. towards this country. And look, this is the way the laws works. This country belongs to Ilhan Omar in the same way that it belongs to me. But my God, show a little appreciation for the fact that you would be living in a in a crap hole if this country <laughs> didn't bring you to a place yeah. that has obviously its problems, but has a lot of prosperity too. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing though. I mean, this, this is maybe a little too academic, but I, you know, I think about Raihan's book a lot because, you know, one of the core arguments to your point is like, you, you don't want these like ethnic enclaves mm -hmm. becoming self-containing. Mm -hmm. You want people to integrate into the broader American family. And that's obviously true. Uh, what, what, what's interesting though, is that, I feel like the American elite has revealed itself to be so corrupted over the last 20 years and, and especially over the last four or five years that I think it, it makes assimilation itself like an interesting question, mm -hmm. right? Um, because like when I think about like Ileana Moore, one argument about Omar is that she has assimilated very successfully yeah. into garbage elite <laughs> white liberal culture, yeah. right? Um, and, 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 and one worry that I have is that it's not totally clear what we want new Americans assimilating into. In the 1980s, the 1990s, you know, immigrants received a message, this great country is your own, you owe something to it, it owes something to you, go out there and make America, you know, a greater place to live. Now the message that new Americans get is, this is a fundamentally evil and white supremacist country, it owes you more than you owe, it, owe to it, and you should try to take as much from it as you possibly can. Like, I actually don't even know what assimilation means when the gender studies majors at Harvard control this country more than like normal middle class Americans from Ohio. And uh, that really that really worries me, because whatever you thought about our elites of 30 or 40 years ago, I think they still fundamentally love the country. I don't want new Americans thinking that, like, the people who actually run the country right now are the people they should aspire to because then we're going to have an even more dysfunctional country than we do right now. Right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, come to America so that your kids will grow up atheist, transgender, and hate the country. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's it's like, you know, do I, do I really want a new American to like have their preferred pronouns in their email signature? No. Yeah. But that's what assimilation means given how broken our elite culture is. What do you think that that same concept says about our foreign policy in general? I mean, I remember a big story in the last year of the Trump administration was we were flying a pride flag over our embassy in Poland and like caused a diplomatic <laughs> in Kabul. In Kabul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and so how do you think about what the American military is really used for, which it seems like 
you know, its goal is to spread transgenderism across the globe. How are you thinking about that? Well, that's exactly the problem is that our leadership doesn't see America as about, you know, freedom, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Um, it sees it as this like social justice project where the full experience of America is, yeah, I mean, you know, transgender people waving the rainbow flag with like six-year-olds gyrating in a parade in downtown New York City, which actually happens, right? I mean, these, these people are pretty crazy. Um, so I, I think that we should not accept that the goal of the American military, staffed by middle-class Americans who have pretty conservative values culturally, should be to like force the people of the Taliban to wave the transgender flag above um, a, a, on, on Pride Month or Pride Day. That is not what Americans should be fighting and dying for. And the fact that our elites see that as an opportunity, I think one, it means they misunderstand the cultures that they're allegedly trying to transform. Like maybe the people of Afghanistan don't want transgender ideology, and maybe that's actually okay. But importantly, maybe the people who are fighting in our wars don't like it that much either, and maybe you should stop trying to force it down everybody's throat. The Marines who are serving in Afghanistan, the Afghan people who are trying to live a life there. Yeah, well, and they launder sensible, you know, everyday patriotism into a requirement to Correct. advance these ideologies across the world. Yeah, I, I went to a business conference once and, you know, sort of these, these business conferences that you get invited to if you're successful and a lot of people there are very wealthy and powerful. And I was listening to one of the most powerful tech CEOs in the country talk about how they wanted to force their customers in India to adopt certain American socially liberal attitudes and even like force that on them in their advertising. And there was a consumer brand, I think it may have even been the CEO of Pepsi, who was like, well, they don't want that. And if we try to force that down their throats, they're not gonna buy our stuff anymore. And then the tech CEO was like, well, if they don't want our product, we basically have a monopoly. So they're not gonna get access to it from anybody else either. And, and, and there, there is just a weird way in which American consumer culture is being used to push not American values, not shared American values, but a very ideological left-wing gender and racial attitude down the throats of other people. And that's not what I want my country to be about. In fact, I'd like us to fix our own problems before trying to create problems in other countries first. Well, and you can always test this very effectively by seeing uh, during Pride Month, which uh, individual nation-specific corporate logos switch to the Pride flag yes. theme one versus don't. <laughs> and basically, it seems like the only countries that are immune are like the Islamic world. <laughs> yeah, BMW Saudi Arabia doesn't support Pride Month? Yeah. What? <laughs> um, but, but this goes, JD, to you know, something that is a cheap shot that's levied to you all the time. You're railing against these elites, but you are one. You went to Yale, you know. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about that because, uh, I mean, I, I, just, I put my cards on the table. I think it's a cheap shot. How do you think about, you know, what the role and responsibility of someone who was given a lot of opportunity through these elite institutions is towards those institutions and the country that you're trying to help lead? Yeah, so before I answer that, let's just sort of accept some basic factual premises, which is, you know, one, yes, I grew up in a working class community in a working class household, but I went to very fancy schools. I've had very fancy credentials and I have a very fancy job, at least until I, until I started running for Senate, which is the opposite <laughs> of a fancy job. 
but those things are all true. And the question is, to your point, what responsibility do I actually have to the community that I came from, to the country that made it possible for me to have a good life? And my basic answer is, yeah, I saw those institutions and I think they're corrupt and I think they basically need to be destroyed so that normal people can have a good life in this country. And um, I don't think it's it's hypocritical. In fact, if I hadn't seen the inside of these institutions, I probably would have never fully appreciated how truly corrupt they actually are. And so um, I, I think it's one thing to come. I mean, the weird thing is, is like if I had come from these institutions and I just coasted. Like I write this book, it's not especially political book. People respond to it pretty well across the political aisle. And I could have just coasted, you know, talked in generalities about the problems of the working class, but never actually tried to do anything about it. And I would have been very rich, very powerful. I would have eventually been welcomed into these conferences with open arms. The cocktail parties are real and I would have been invited to all of them. Uh, instead, what I chose to do was actually call out these institutions for the corruption, for the fact that they're not actually serving the interests of their own citizens. Um, and and that to me is what those of us who have been blessed by this country actually have an obligation to do. We have an obligation to try to make it the sort of place where whatever your ambitions or aspirations, so long as you play by the rules of the society, you can have a good life. And I, I just don't think that's true for enough people in this country right now. And the fact that it's not true is at least in part, and I think largely in part, the fault of the very institutions that hold a lot of power in this country. Um, that is a fact of American life. And unfortunately, I do think it behooves us to have some people who actually spent some time in those institutions who know how they actually operate and can honestly call out their, their faults and flaws. We're coming up on the 60th anniversary of the publishing of God and Man at Yale, actually. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in fact, I think it's it's out uh, this week or something like that. Um, you went to Yale Law School. You talked about the corruption in elite culture. Very specifically, what was it you saw there? Because I have a feeling Ohio State was a little bit more of a kind of normal place where normal people go than Yale Law School. Yeah. What <clears throat> did you see that so disgusted you? Yeah, I mean, Ohio State's normal, um, certainly when I was there. I think it's probably become less normal because the gender stuff and the critical race stuff continues to infect yeah. all of our institutions, right? Yeah, and I went to a big state school, so, too. So, so I, 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 I think that it's worse now than it was when I was there. When I went to Ohio State, I loved it. I mean, here's what I'll say about, about Yale Law School. First of all, most of the people are more or less good people, Right. They care about their families. They are not like stabbing you in the back. They're not like ripping pages out of library books so that other people don't get ahead. But I think they are caught up in a rat race that most of them don't realize the time is making them really miserable. I wonder if they ever figured out like what elite culture does, what these elite institutions do is they take some very smart people in our society. They filter them into a very small place and they basically tell them to want the same things, clerkships, law firm jobs, consulting gigs, you know, nice cushy jobs at private equity firms. And they tell them that the only way they're gonna be happy is to get those things. And so those people end up focusing on career and on credential at the expense of the things that actually make people happy. And so you have people at Yale Law School, you have women who think that truly the liberationist path is to spend 90 hours a week working in a cubicle at McKinsey instead of starting a family and having children. And I think that those people, to, in their defense, 
they genuinely believe that the path of liberation is to work 90 hours in a cubicle at McKinsey. What they don't realize, and I think some of them do eventually realize it, thank God, is that that is actually a path to misery. And the path to happiness and to fulfillment is something that these institutions are telling people not to do. And that's basically what I think the corruption is. The corruption is it puts people on a career pipeline that, that, that causes them to chase things that will make them miserable and unhappy. And so they get in positions of, of power and then they project that misery and unhappiness on the rest of society. But then where does the racial gender resentment come from? Is it just because they realize that they didn't get what they want and now they want to exert their anger on the world? Or, you know, how, how do you get all of the kind of social malaise that, that comes out of these elite institutions when they're just focused on making money? And Well, I think the racial and gender resentment, I mean, this is the way that I think about it. And I wouldn't say that I've fully developed views on this, but to me, what it is, is is sort of a value system to replace the fact that they're all fundamentally atheist or agnostic. They have no real value system. Their only value system is achieve in a very conventional way. And so the idea that somehow they're pursuing racial or gender equity is like the value system that gives their life meaning. Well, of course, they all find that that value system leads to misery, leads to unhappiness. And so... I, I think that what happens is like whenever you really pursue something, right? Like let, let's say a doctor gives you a medicine to cure a disease and it doesn't work, right? Um, the patient gets worse. Well, you can conclude of one of two things. Either the medicine isn't working or the patient was so sick that what they need is even more of the medicine that you originally prescribed. And I think the gender inequity stuff is like, we need more of the medicine. Okay, clearly this value set has made me a miserable person who can't have kids because I already, you know, passed the biological period when it was possible. And I live in a 1200 square foot apartment in New York and I pay $5,000 a month for it. But I'm really better than these other people. What I'm going to do is project my like racial and gender sensitivities on the rest of them. And like the reason that our society is broken is because these people don't think the exact way that I think, even though the way that I think has made me a miserable person, I just need to make more people think like that. So we're going to teach this in our schools in our universities, even in our elementary schools, because once everybody agrees with me, then everything will finally come full circle and uh, we'll have a happy, healthy society. I think that's that's like basically my theory for what's going on, is they're just having found that this medicine is making them sick. They're trying to impose it on the rest of society because society just needs more and more of the same medicine. You know, the other thing that, that these elite institutions do is it turns people into incredibly conventional human beings. They're terrified of thinking outside the Overton window. They're terrified of saying something that might offend somebody else, right? It doesn't make them thoughtful people that are reading a lot of interesting books. It actually makes them incredibly narrow. Like you do not need to read a single book to succeed at Yale Law School. You just need to follow like 10 people on Twitter and say the same things that they say <laughs> and maybe come up with a new way of saying it. And you can, you can participate in 100% of the conversations that exist at a place like Yale Law School. It's all like racial justice, gender justice, gobbledygook. That's all you have to do, and you can succeed in that institution. Um, you know, we can we can talk about you know how I got in hot water with with uh, my my uh, with saying that Alex Jones was a more credible source of information than Rachel Maddow. But like one of the things that I saw in the reaction to that tweet 
was people are terrified of unconventional people, of people who don't think the thoughts that they're supposed to think. And that to me is like the opposite of what you would want in an elite. You would want an elite that's willing to think outside the box. That's willing to say, well, maybe this is like a crazy idea, uh, but maybe it's true. And we should pursue the truth because that's like what we're all here for. That's why we all make a lot of money is we're supposed to pursue truth in the interest of making our society better, but they're terrified of anything that doesn't fit within their their very narrow box. Well, and that's a very interesting <clears throat> thing about all this. If you went out and asked anyone, you know, in, in, in rural America, you know, who would you rather listen to yeah. prognosticate about the future of politics, Alex Jones or Rachel Maddow, I would say that probably at least 70% of them would probably agree with you. A hundred percent. And look, I mean, it's, oh, it's so sad because the people, they think that they're smart and they're so boring. They're so boring. Okay, a year ago, this crazy conspiracy theory that maybe, just maybe, this Chinese coronavirus came from a Wuhan lab leak, okay? That is something that normal people in Ohio were like, yeah, that sounds pretty credible. I mean, hell, they have an institute of virology like a mile down the road from where this thing created. And we know that they're doing crazy research there. Sounds pretty credible. The elites would get like, you could see their chest tighten at yeah. the suggestion that maybe this thing came from a lab leak. Stop Asian hate. <laughs> Stop Asian hate. It's just so, so crazy. And I really, I, again, I, I feel genuine pity for a lot of these people because I think that a lot of them were taught that they would be like intellectual leaders. They would be people who thought about big ideas and they get into these career paths and into these institutions that actually punish people for thinking out, outside the box. Well, and it, it's the sameness in all of elite American society that, that makes it so boring. Um, you know, that applies to the ideological constraints. It applies to, you know, no matter where you go. I mean, you'll hear the same wacky ideas at the UC Berkeley English Department as you will at the Yale English Department, even though they're on either end of a continent. And you even see it inside American cities. This is just a bugaboo of mine that I've been noticing lately as I've been traveling. Like you go to the downtown of every city in America that's over a certain size and it's the same, you know, JP Morgan Chase, Macy's, Hard Rock Cafe. Like there is a sameness to all of elite American life. Um, why do you think that is? I mean, is it is it ultimately the influence of multinational corporations that have so much control over our lives? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's basically consumerism. I mean, we've we've been taught in our society, I see you have Orrin Cass's book there, that the only way to measure the health of a society is not even production, but consumption. How much are we consuming as a people? And that's good. If you have to borrow $500 billion from China to consume the things that the Chinese peasants make for you, well, you're better off than the Chinese peasants um, because you're consuming things. And I think that, that what that has led to is a society where if we can make consumption as efficient and cheap as possible, then that's good. And one way to make it as efficient and cheap as possible is to make it boring, right? It's the same thing. It's the same business plans. It's the same business models. It's even the same architecture in some of these places because if you don't have to reinvent the wheel, it's cheaper. And if it's cheaper, people can, can consume more. Uh, but yeah, I think it makes us all much more boring people. It makes our cities less interesting and it makes us less happy. Yeah, I want to talk some about that, about like thinking about uh, home and, and, and what that means and why different parts of the country are different uh, and why that's a good thing. Um, 
one of the things I think that most intrigued me when I read your book, and this was before you were running for Senate, you sure. know, is that you, you, you know, made the unique decision to return to Ohio, to mm -hmm. not live on either coast and living this, you know, elite lifestyle. You decided to return, you know, home to where you came from. Uh, how do you think about home uh, and kind of that concept uh, in, in, uh, rapidly shifting world of anywheres and somewheres to use a quote from uh grace olmstead's book uh uprooted yeah, it's a good book um it's a very good book my uh my fiance actually went to school with uh, okay grace so that's how i that's how i got a copy of the book but um how how do you kind of think about that you know as someone who's been who's kind of returned back to the community that you grew up in yeah, it's it's very complicated because so my wife and I raise our kids about 25 miles from where I grew up. It's not like five miles from where I grew up. Right. So like clearly we've built a home. We're very happy, uh, but it's not like we moved down the street from where I grew up. And I, I think a statistic that uh, that my friend Michael Lynn once sent me is that one of the biggest divides in America is between people who live within like 30 miles of their mother and people who don't live within 30 miles of their mother. And, and obviously, you know, people move around and jobs happen and there are all these ways in which these generalizations miss important things. But I think most people would actually be healthier and happier. They'd have a lower consumption, they'd be healthier and happier if they were within 30 miles of where their mother lives. Mm -hmm. And um, that that is kind of how they wouldn't need free daycare. They wouldn't need free daycare. Um, no, when, you know, it's one of the great things about living where we live is, uh, you know, if we like go out and have dinner, my wife and I, we have like nine people who are eager to help us uh, with the kids that night. Um, but we also just, you know, our kids have real connection to their families and they, they get to see, you know, my mom, like I said earlier, struggled with opioid addiction, but she's been clean and sober for six years now. Like, would she have the relationship with my kids would she be clean? Would she even be alive? Honestly, I really don't know. I think my kids are actually a big part of the reason why she's had such a successful road to recovery the past five, six years. Uh, if, if, if we lived in like a townhome in D.C., I don't know. Right. And, uh, you know, they're there. They're, they're all again, like, you know, if you if you're I always tell, you know, people who are very well educated. Right. If you if you want to work at a big law firm. You're going to make less money if you go and live in Cincinnati than if you live in New York City. But I actually think you'll be a lot happier. You'll have more interesting stuff to do. And I, I really do encourage people to, look, build the life that you have to build. Obviously, jobs, finances, all that stuff matters. But try to build it in a place where you're not just going to be another person on a corporate rat race to a job that makes you miserable. And, you know, it's it's like just to go back to this, this thing. is like sometimes I feel like our leadership they're running this nonstop rat race where like the prize at the end of the rainbow is not something that actually makes them fulfilled or happy. It just makes them unhappy. Yeah. I, I very much, I identify with that a lot. You know, I spent a lot of time, uh, my parents are missionaries in Honduras. So I spent a lot of time, uh, hopping around, um, and definitely, you know, returning to those places that were once home has been a, a, a very uh, rejuvenating experience for me. But what, lessons do you want uh you know your 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 sons to learn as you you know raise them in ohio um kind of learning from the way that you've lived your life and how do you balance that you know i mean raising a family while running for senate you know you're rel actually not relatively you're a lot younger than a lot of your uh, sure. future colleagues uh so uh how do you how do you kind of balance that 
Oh, it's tough, man. I, I haven't quite figured it out. And obviously the campaign trail is rough on the family in a very big way. It would certainly be impossible if we didn't live so close to a lot of supportive family. And, you know, if my wife wasn't a real champ about it. Um, so that, that makes it possible there. I mean, I, I think, you know, long-term, obviously running your first campaign in a very competitive Senate primary is different. You know, it's, being a public servant is an intense life. I think it's especially intense right now. So my expectation, even talking to other senators, you know, folks like Josh Hawley, uh, who's a good friend of mine, is that, you know, people do figure out a way to actually really have a, a coherent, intact family life I've seen as public he, servants. I've seen that he in particular has been very good about that. I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I, I, I do think it's possible that this is obviously a very tough time. I mean, you know, long term, I think Look, I, I'm a, I'm a I'm a devout Catholic. I converted to 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 Catholicism, 2018, and like I want my 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 sons to be virtuous men above all else, right? I want them to to take care of their families. I want them to look after people who need looking after. I want them to be able to defend themselves. I want them to be able uh, to do things that are interesting and inspiring to them. I want them to think outside the box. I don't want them to get on this ridiculous track where they're like chess titans every time they're exposed to an uncomfortable idea. Uh, but I also think, you know, one of the weird things about elite society is it's deeply uncomfortable with masculinity. And when I say I want them to be virtuous men, I want them to actually be men. I want them to be proud and confident. I don't want them to feel like being a man is something to be ashamed of. Uh, it's like, look, you know, um, you know, the, the, the men are the people who stormed the beaches at Normandy. That is a good thing. That masculinity, that sense, I think, of a protective, defensive, proud masculinity is a good thing. And, you know, I, I just this is one weird thing that conservatives don't talk about enough. So I'm sorry to, to go in this direction. But we don't talk enough about the fact that like traditional masculine traits are now actively suppressed from childhood all the way through adulthood. Like my four-year-old boy, love this kid. He's just like, you know, so funny. But he loves, like when he plays, what he wants to play is fighting. He wants to fight <laughs> dragons. He wants to fight bears. He wants to fight monsters. Like he wants to defend his home, right? I did not put that in there. I think there's something deeply cultural and biological, spiritual about this desire to like defend his home and his family. And he acts that out in the way that he plays. It's kind of weird how uncomfortable that makes people. It's like, well, you know, maybe we should be a little less, you know, violent. Maybe we shouldn't use those words. Maybe, maybe the monster's just hungry. Should we feed the monster? <laughs> like, there's, you see this stuff when you're a father that I would have never seen just like worrying about the decline of masculinity, which I even wrote about in my book. But you start to realize there's like this weird cultural suppressant effect over men that I think is extremely dangerous. I mean, look, if the Chinese invade us in 10 years, they're going to be beaten back by boys like Yuan who practice fighting the monsters who become proud men who defend their homes. They're not going to be defended by the soy boys who want to feed the monsters. Yeah. Yeah. This No, it's, it's so true. Uh, this is actually a bugaboo of mine as well. So I'm glad we got here because it's you know, there is a fake version of this that is on the ascent too, right? The one version of masculinity that's allowed to be asserted in modern American life is the consumerist version. Oh, I order steaks and I have beer and look at <laughs> my right. cigars. Like, oh, that's return, all to, return to 60s grill advertisement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it, it, 
it, like that like every like blog is all about uh, about masculinity is trying to sell you stuff whereas you know that is now somewhat okay you're allowed to have your craft beer and you know with all of its phytoestrogens and be a soy boy over there but <laughs> if you dare talk about something like force of will or conquest or any of these other much more historically robust concepts of masculinity you're laughed out of the room and That's yeah right. our entire public education system exists to beat this out of men because ultimately our public education system is built for young women which is fine. Correct. You need an education system for young women. It's not the one for men. And so, um, yeah, exactly. And in, in a healthy society, we would be looking at the fact that, first of all, you know, getting a college degree is very often the gateway to a lot of good jobs. We'd be looking at the fact that men are radically under enrolling and underperforming in colleges like, oh, this is a problem that we've created this barrier and then made it harder for men to actually get through that barrier. Or even in elementary school, I mean, you see this very early on that our modern education system, boys are miserable in it, higher anxiety rates to the point where like a lot of them are getting drugged, which of course is great for the big pharma companies. We don't want the boys to be boys. Let's give them some Ritalin. But they're they're very early on. You see it in their test scores and every measure of mental health that boys are falling behind girls. A normal society would say, this is a real problem that our boys are falling so far behind. But our elites, you know, trying to give us the medicine that has failed in their own lives and also using it as a cudgel against us, we'll call that sexist because they don't want us to talk about the fact that there is a real crisis of masculinity and it starts at boyhood in our country. Well, yeah. to the extent they'll complain about it at all, there was just an article about this in the New York Times about how uh, low the rates of white men enrolling in colleges. Yeah. And they'll say, you know, the real problem with this is that if white men don't go to college, they embrace reactionary <laughs> politics. <laughs> I know, which like that's, you know, that's that's the good thing about them not going yeah. to college. The bad thing is is that our multinational corporate overlords were used as an excuse to discriminate against them in the labor market, which yeah. is what's what's happened. I think this is, by the way, like one of the interesting things we could do as a conservative movement is stop the discrimination against people who don't have college degrees. 99% of the jobs that require a college degree, it's bogus. It's pure elite protection of their own power. If we made it impossible to discriminate against people who didn't have college degrees, our whole job market would be better Young men would be doing better. Our labor market would work better. You know, the the uh, the gender theorists would be very unhappy. But that's good too. Yeah, it's why we don't require college degrees <laughs> for anything at American Moment. Um, it's good. And in fact, we prefer if you don't have one because <laughs> it means you probably don't have a ton of debt, and we'll do low-paying political work for right. longer. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 such a big problem. And again, it goes to. A concept that you've talked about, which is being a class trader. I mean, you have all of these fancy lines of credentials all the way up to Yale Law School and beyond. But but you, uh, I think in a speech to the Ohio Federation of College Republicans or something, we're talking about how if you have these credentials, it's your responsibility to to ultimately try to destroy them, which is traditionally something that you see like lefties talk about a lot. <laughs> but but I think that it has to be embraced on the right as well, both for like moral reasons, but also political reasons, because this is our base. Yep. That's right. And uh, Tucker Carlson once said that the last true economic populist in our country was Teddy Roosevelt, which I see That's sitting right, right there. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm very influenced by this this political scientist, Michael End at UT Austin, which is, I think, where, where you went to school. Yep. And, you know, m one of the arguments that Mike makes is that populism only works if there is some leadership that understands how the institutions actually work. Like our people, you go and do a GOP picnic in Steubenville, Ohio right now. Our people are woke. 
They're mad about big tech. They're mad about immigration. They're mad about multinationals shipping, shipping jobs overseas, doing business with the CCP. Like they are actually more on our side than any of the elite institutions in Washington, D.C. But for those people, for our people to translate good instincts into actual effective governance that stops destroying their lives and their communities, there, there needs to be people like us who are actually willing to go into places like D.C. and make it a little bit harder for the elites to do the things that they're doing and, and God willing, actually turn the page a little bit and start doing some affirmatively good things for our own people. That is what you need for this movement to actually work. It's one of the reasons why I admire what you guys are doing. But one of the things that, that, that is necessary for that is we don't just need really smart people who are hardworking and dedicated to their country. We actually need people who are willing to enter the political fray. And to do that, um, you need to have, um, or I should say, you need people who are willing to like reform the institutions, not just enter the political fray, but reform the institutions that are out there. And to do that, it helps to actually know how some of those institutions work. So how are you thinking about, because you know, the, the classic line of American conservatives over the last, you know, 30 to 40 years has been, you know, standing athwart history yelling stop. But the reality of the situation is loser that, mentality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, things are pretty bad in America right now. And so, you know, I've said that, you know, a posture of restoration or even creation of something new and better is is much more what we need to adopt. What is the the 10,000 foot view that you're thinking about when it comes to what a conservative or a Republican or just someone who is a patriot should be advancing for the future of the country? Well, I think the basic idea is that we have to seize the institutions and make them actually work for our people. And that's a very challenging and difficult task. But a, a couple of a couple of data points, right? So Universities, I really believe, are the gatekeepers. Um, everything runs through the universities, the ideas, the fancy credentials. Why is it that we listen to Dr. Fauci? Because he has a university degree that confers legitimacy. Everything that is broken about our society from Fauci's authority to the things that our kids are being taught in the sixth grade runs through the university system. There is no way for a conservative to accomplish our vision of society unless we're willing to strike at the heart of the beast. That's the universities. So like the idea that, you know, well, we get a little bit more diversity at Harvard or Yale or Ohio State, or we maybe make things a little bit nicer for conservatives, or we found some conservative clubs on campus. No, 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 no. Unless we're willing to deinstitutionalize the left in those institutions or destroy the institutions absent that, we are going to continue to make the most powerful academic actors in our society actively aligned against us. Only way to work is to actually take some of these institutions over. Donald Trump was president of 2016 to 2020. When Obama was president from 2012 to 2016, 90% of his appointees in the administrative bureaucracy were Democrats, and the remaining 10% were like mostly nonpartisan, some Republicans and so forth. When Trump was in office, 50% of his appointments were Republicans and the rest were Democrats, unaffiliated and so forth. If we're not actually willing to even work the institutions when our guy is in power, we're not serious about governing the country. You can't still yell athwart history yelling stop. History is going to run over us unless we actually change the driver.
Yeah. Well, someone uh, at National Review who was once yelling at us and I believe has written negatively about you as well said that, you know, that that smacks of the uh, the swampy logic of the administrative state, which like if that's what you want to call it, fine. But ultimately, there's power on the table. And if we don't use it, then it's going to be used against us. Uh, yeah, I just this is so I, I hate these arguments. They're so <laughs> stupid. Look, I mean, maybe what I just said is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it is right in most particulars but in some particulars needs to be reformed needs to be corrected but at the end of the day if your only response to an argument is a slogan you're an idiot and you should stop arguing about politics it smacks of the swampy logic of the industry who cares <laughs> who cares who cares you cannot govern effectively by slogan this is what our elites do they offer fake arguments okay you can't oppose 100,000 unvetted Afghan refugees. Why? Diversity is our strength. Because diversity is our strength. Because it's racist. <laughs> These slogans make us all dumber. And what we need more than anything among our among our elites on the right is good arguments. No more slogans, actually good arguments. If something is a bad idea, you should be able to convince somebody of it without using a stupid slogan. What's been the reception? Because the the final kind of trump card that these you know dead consensus believers will whip out is that well the American people they're fundamentally libertarian so you're just not gonna it's just not it's gonna fall on false ears they're not populist they 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 believe in you know freedom and liberty as I define it. Um, what's been the reception as you've gone out on the trail and talked about this stuff? Oh, I mean, look, if I lose this race, which I might, I don't think I will. Things feel like they're going really well. But if I lose this race, it'll be because I stupidly criticized Donald Trump in 2016, creating sound bites that my opponents can use in attack ads against me. And that's that's it. It will not be because the voters of the, of the state of Ohio are like fusionist Buckleyite libertarians. They don't care. <laughs> Most of them don't even know. They couldn't pick Bill Buckley out of a lineup. They don't care. Um, to give you an example. So I gave a speech not too long ago in Ohio. Um, most of the other candidates were there. The reception to me was much more positive because I think that what I say is much more interesting and, you know, got got a lot of volunteers, got way more volunteers than the other candidates. But I was one of the things I talked a lot about was big tech. And somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I really liked what you had to say. One criticism. I said, yes, sir. And he said, I don't I don't think we should break these companies up. And I said, oh, OK, here, here, here is a Buckleyite libertarian, the one in the room. He said, why don't we just put all their CEOs in prison? <laughs> <laughs> this is where our voters are. The problem of this movement right now is not our voters. It's not the people. It's the alleged leaders of the movement. This is why I say we need a leadership in this movement that can actually do something. But more importantly, actually is worthy of the people who are out there doing good things, despite the fact that Steubenville and Middletown, Ohio were crushed by very bad trade deals, a lot of stupid ideas. There are still a lot of people there, most of whom are voting Republican, who are working hard and trying to build a life for themselves and for their families. We need a leadership that's actually worthy of those people. Yeah, this is very interesting when, um, you know, we saw you give a speech at the uh, ISI uh, American Political Economy Conference, and you made these uh <clears throat> these comments about how one of the one of the biggest problems with you know uh, the American elites, but journalists in particular, uh, is 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 that they're childless yep. and they have no stake in society, which is a very true point. And we saw nothing but pants wetting from. <laughs> journalists across like all over the country were writing like jd vance is evil and should go to hell like my (laughs) thesis uh and listen i got messages from probably 15 or 20 people who 
like we're probably just hearing of you for the first time, but we're, you know, maybe had been on our website and had seen that you were on our board and they were like, I wish I lived in Ohio so I could vote for that guy. Like yeah. he's, he's totally right. Um, I wish they did too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so why do you think that to give you just one last chance to like hit on the journalists, why do you think they get it so wrong? Like what, why is it that there's this complete disconnect between them and reality? Well, because I think that their lives are so much different from most actual people. Right. Um, again, if you've been taught your entire life from your fancy private high school all the way to your you know, freshman seminar at Yale, all the way to your master's course at the Columbia Journalism School, that liberation is for you to work literally as Jeff Bezos's mouthpiece at The Washington <laughs> Post. That is liberation, making sixty thousand dollars a year, being able to barely afford a one bedroom apartment in D.C. And you get there and you find out that you're actually miserable. I think the only thing to really do is to lash out emotionally when you realize that actually isn't good. And one of the ways, you know, again, it's I, th I think it's a little bit about lashing out emotionally. I also think they've recognized that it's a very good weapon, right? If you call somebody sexist, if you call somebody racist, that's a very easy way to win an argument in broken elite culture because it terrifies people. Um, and so that, that that's that's really what I what I think is going on. Their lives are so disconnected, and at the same time, they cannot admit it to themselves because it's too late. Because again, going back to sort of weird lies that have been told, one of the weird lies the elites have been told is that it's very easy to start a family when you're 45. Well, human bi biology. Says otherwise. Uh, God, uh, <laughs> God says otherwise, yeah. right? And and so I, I I really think that a core part of what's wrong with journalism in America is that you have a group of people who are dealing with their own like psychotic breaks. They're, I mean, if you think of the craziest journalists in American life, they're all in their late thirties or early early forties. They have all reached this point where I think they recognize that their lives are miserable and unhappy but they all feel like they've reached the point of no return, right? And those are the most psychotic people. And unfortunately, we just live in a world where they have too much power. That's part of our, our job is to change it. And disempower them, we will. JD, where can people learn more about you and what you're up to? Yeah, so people should go to jdvance.com. I'm on Twitter at jdvance1, and I'm also on Facebook. Uh, so yeah, follow along, get involved. We, we need people's help. Yeah, and help uh, preserve JD from ratios when journalists get mad <laughs> when he praises InfoWars and Alex Jones. Uh, JD, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We talked about it a little bit on the episode, but this week we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into a speech that JD recently gave at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute's uh, Conference on American Political Economy, where we were happy to partner with them on that event. Uh, and he talked a lot about his view on our childless elites and what needs to be done to rebalance the scales of power away from them and towards ordinary people who have kids and like children because they're not sociopaths, uh, among other things. Uh, it was a barn burner of a speech. I remember being in the audience, everyone really 
enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Um, but it's a concept that I think is extremely important to dive into very often because ultimately, if you have no stake in the future of your civilization, you are going to act very differently than if you do. Um, look, I mean, there's there's two primary kind of levers that make our elites uh, extremely dumb. Uh, one is that they uh, have no sort of worldview beyond basic materialism. They're atheist or agnostic in most cases. And so they have no sense of the transcendent. They have no conception of life after death or, or anything else. Uh, and so they they are very much focused on the here and now in a way that's detrimental to any sense of long-term building. And then you add on to that the fact that they have no children, so they don't even have kind of a base biological or deterministic sense of longevity beyond their own life. Uh, and they basically become sociopaths. They become people who only think for themselves uh, or construct elaborate ideologies for why living alone, childless with two cats and an SSRI addiction are actually good. Like, you know, it's actually bad to have children because there is an impending climate catastrophe or what have you. Um, they're demented and power needs to be taken away from them by any means necessary in order to ensure that we have a thriving civilization or really any civilization at all. Yeah, I think one of the greatest things about JD's speech was that <laughs> You know, there's no reason to be ruled by these people. I mean, you're. It doesn't you're, have to be this way. Yeah, it doesn't have to be this way. Your average American, you know, e even though, you know, we've seen, because of the ruling elites, we've seen certainly, you know, a decline in fruitful marriages and, and you know, a, a, a rise in, you know, divorce, but it doesn't have to be this way. I think the vast majority of, of normal middle class Americans value marriage, they value family, they value, you know, childbearing and and proper child rearing uh I, these people don't need to be in charge you don't need to listen to them you know i i tell people a lot that uh you know it's very hard to be friends with people who don't share the same values as you uh you know if you're out to brunch and 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 one of your friends is like "Ooh, kids gross you know when they walk by in the aisle you probably don't want to be friends with this person uh little tip you also probably don't want this person leading your country uh so it was a it was a great speech um you know there were a lot of people who agreed with jd that were like mouths agape like so excited <laughs> about his speech and then there were some people that i knew did not like jd who were a little slack jawed and angry uh but but it's okay it was a, it was a great speech and the way that you know it was good uh was by all the you know as i referenced earlier in the episode all the pants wedding from the national media uh about about how horrible jd is um and how how he couldn't possibly be right uh their demented screeching tells you all that you need to know yeah, it's a big problem. And look, I want to be kind of transparent about something like this. Neither Nick or I have children right now, but Nick's about to get married here in two weeks, and I anticipate that there will be children in the picture sooner rather than later. Um, I'd be very surprised if Nick got to the age of 30 without a gaggle of children running around. Uh, and then, you know, I, I also try to construct my life in a way that I can have children as soon as possible. Um, that is very different than most people with our background, people who are running a nonprofit organization in DC who, you know, operate in the circles we do. It's actually profoundly unusual. It shouldn't be. It's actually deeply, deeply destructive that it is. And, you know, I very candidly get people who I care about from a kind of pre-political background who still raise their eyebrow. They're like, what do you mean you want to have kids? Don't you want to wait? Don't you want to wait till you're 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 35? It's like, no, I don't. Because Ultimately, life is made worth living by having a family, and that involves getting married as quickly as possible. It also means having children, and that's 
what we need a lot more of and ultimately being ruled by people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Kamala Harris, who have no children of their own, is no path forward for a civilization because ultimately those people are out for themselves and really just sort of massaging their own social neuroses along the way as they realize that they probably did want kids. Well, Evie and I got the same thing, you know, when we were telling people that we were going to get married. Like, really? Are you sure? Like, you're Nick, you're 24. Doesn't that seem like a little too soon? I mean, it's crazy. You know, 40, 50 years ago, it was not this way. Like this would have been a, a late time to get married. Um, and yeah, I would, what were you doing this whole time, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> and I would, I would not say in any, you know, sense of the word that, you know, delaying the, the, the time to get married and have kids by any sense of the word is progress. Uh, I just, I just think that's completely wrongheaded. Um, and you know, Quite frankly, a lot of people who have made those uh, insinuations about, um, you know, Evie and I getting married too soon are uh, not invited to the wedding. So. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, well, there you have it. Hopefully you like the episode we did with JD today. I know it's one that you guys have been uh, looking for for a long time. And who knows, maybe if he has a reason to be in Washington more often in a couple of years, we'll have JD on a lot more often. Uh, as always, please make sure to rate five stars and subscribe. Uh, we are not slowing down. I think we are now officially, I've had every single one of our board members on. Uh, and we've now had, uh, we're going to have Sagar on again. So um, honestly, uh, it's it's been a ton of fun doing this podcast and we intend on uh, continuing to do it if you have any questions you can ask them in a five-star review and we'll be sure to answer them on the show uh, and really share this episode around we tried to we very intentionally listened to all the past episodes that jd has done on big podcasts recently and tried to make this one a little bit different talking about different themes um, so hopefully you guys enjoyed it i think it stands up to the best of them we do our best um, and we'll see you guys next week Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Hey.